In the early 19th century, there was a set of magazines which were said to be so gruesome that they shocked readers with their graphic accounts of brutal executions, cannibalism, ghosts and even torture. For just one penny, these magazines could be bought and poured over to find the most gruesome of tales. These lurid, sensational and melodramatic stories found themselves in the hands of a population that could now read, and as such they were eagerly devoured by a new mass audience. And rumour has it, they may have just been the inspiration to a lot of Charles Dickens' stories. Today on Macabre London, we uncover some stories from the terrific Register. And welcome back to Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G. And today we're going to be diving into a few tales from a book called The Terrific Register. Now, first off, I'm going to be honest with you. The last few episodes that I've done have been really research intensive and it's taken me much longer than it usually would to put the episodes together. So I've run out of time to do the next episode that I want to do complete justice. And it has got a lot of research behind it yet again. I don't know why I do this to myself, but I do. And so I just want to make sure that I get it right. So (laughs) instead, because I have completely run out of time, today we're going to be exploring some stories from the Terrific Register, which is terrific. So I think you're going to really enjoy them. But before we do that, if you are new here, then hi, I'm Nikki. I tell creepy stories on the internet for fun. And I would love it if you came and joined the Ghoul Gang. So all you need to do is hit that subscribe button or follow me on your podcast provider. And then I'll pop up like the little goblin that I am in whatever media format you choose to enjoy. Let's get into some stories from the Terrific Register. So first off, I just want to give you a couple of little facts about the Terrific Register because it really is terrific. I know I've already said that, but it really is. (laughs) So by the early 19th century, more people could now read. Before, reading had only really been available to the middle and upper classes, and now it was trickling down to everyone. This meant that there was new reading material being produced for the working classes, and of course this played into the more dramatic, entertaining, gruesome side of things. These mass-produced papers were also accompanied with woodcuts and attention-grabbing headlines, and they were sold in penny instalments and eagerly devoured by a new mass audience. I have just stolen that last paragraph from the British Library, so I hope they don't mind. And I'm also just going to steal a bit more from them as well. In later life, Charles Dickens remembered his teenage enthusiasm for the Terrific Register, a weekly magazine which ran for about two years, from 1823 to 1825. Under the pretext of exposing the misery caused by human depravity, it regaled its readers with graphic accounts of brutal executions, murder, torture, cannibalism, ghosts and apparitions. For a penny, Dickens told his friend and biographer John Forster he could frighten the wits out of his head, which, considering there was an illustration to every number in which there was always a pool of blood, and at least one body, was cheap. 
Stories such as the apparition of the Duchess of Mazarin and the lunatic widow fed his imagination and provided the background for a lifelong fascination with legends, fairy tales and the supernatural. So what I thought was, if it's good enough for Dickens, it's good enough for me. So I have the terrific register here in my hands and I thought what would be fun is to just read a couple of stories from here. Now I'm not entirely certain that any of these are based on truth, but they were fun and created, I think, for enjoyment in mind. So I'm just going to read a few of them, see what you think, and I hope you enjoy them. Now, I thought it would be really interesting to start with a story that I have covered on the show before, but I've not read this before in the Terrific Register, so I thought it might be quite interesting to uh, to read it and see what their take was on it. And it's The Murder of Matthews, the Dulwich Hermit. If you can't quite remember that episode, it was quite a while ago now. It was one that contained the Dulwich Hermit and also the Mole Man of Blackheath and the Mole Man of Hackney. So look it up if you haven't listened to it. It's a good one. I love a story of somebody living outside the norm. So um, do give it a listen. I did really enjoy making that one. So this one is called Murder of Matthews, the Dulwich Hermit. The eccentricities of the above unfortunate old man were for a number of years the subject of much curiosity to those who have visited Norwood and its vicinity. Many years ago he obtained leave of the governors of Dulwich Common to form himself a dwelling on their ground in the neighbourhood of Sydenham Common and Dulwich Wood. This dwelling, which was the child of his own fancy, was far secluded from any other and consisted of an excavation in the earth, thatched in with fern and underwood. In this cave or hermitage, oh, is that where hermit comes from? I wonder if the Dulwich hermit coined the term hermit. That's interesting. In this cave or hermitage, he lived for a series of years, his neighbouring gentry by whom, for his simplicity of manners, he was much liked. He always returned to his cave to sleep, and on Sundays used to sell beer to such as curiosity might lead to visit his cell, of whom in the summer there were many. However, he had not resided there long before some villains, instigated by the same motives that probably occasioned his death, an idea that he was possessed of money, broke into his cave, beat him in a most dreadful manner, and agreeably by his own account robbed him of twelve shillings. For upwards of a year and a half after this, he deserted his abode and usually slept in the stables or haylofts of those for whom he had been at work. Drawn, however, by some strange impulse to his former mode of life, he returned to his cave, the construction of which he altered by digging it with a mouth resembling an oven into which he had just room to crawl. And when laid down, he contrived to press his feet against a board which was placed at the entrance for a door. All these precautions did not, however, save him from the further attacks of his enemies. For shortly after, he was found near the entrance of his cave, dead with his jawbone broken in two places and a severe wound in his cheek. The body was discovered by some boys who at Christmas time had always made a practice of paying the old man a visit. He was covered with ferns and under his arm was an oaken branch about six or seven feet in length, which it is supposed the villains put into the cave to hook him out as the hooked part was found broken off, which exactly matched the stick. And from the nature of the wound in his face, it appeared likely the hook had been hitched into his mouth, there being a hole the size of it right through his cheek, 
and in dragging him to the mouth of the cave, they must have turned the body as his head, when discovered, was outermost. His jaw was broken, and as was the opinion of a professional gentleman on the spot, the extravasated blood getting into his throat caused suffocation. The deceased had been at French Horn in Dulwich on the preceding Monday evening and changed half a guinea there, great part of which change he is known to have had about him when he went home, none of which was to be found as his pockets were turned out. A secret pocket of which none of his acquaintances had any knowledge did not escape the prying eyes of the murderers as it was also turned out. Matthews, the deceased, was near 70 years of age and was supposed to have been induced to adopt his singular mode of living from the affectionate remembrance of a departed wife by whom he had one daughter. He was generally liked in the neighbouring villages and remarked for the simplicity of his manners and the punctuality of his dealings, from which circumstance some gypsies, perhaps who infest the vicinity of Norwood, might be led to conceive him worth money. Three men of the above description were shortly after committed by Messrs Bullock and Bowles on suspicion of knowing something of the matter as they were part of the vagrant tenants of an encampment formed very near the cave of the deceased. The coroner for the county of Surrey with a jury of 24 respectable persons sat soon afterwards on the body of the deceased. Nathaniel Field, the first witness, was one of the boys who had on the above morning, Friday, gone, and, as was their custom, to visit the old man of the wood. On searching his cave, they only found his bottle and scrip, and on looking narrowly about the outside of his hut, they found the body covered with two old coats and some fern. He, with his companion, gave information of the circumstance to the parish officers at Dulwich when Mr Kitchen, a surgeon and apothecary, went to examine the body. He was lying on his back, his jawbone broke in two, and his mouth was filled with congealed blood. One part of the jawbone forced through the outer skin. Mr Kitchen had known the singular character of old Matthews and from the entrance of the cave believed the oaken plank produced to have been the instrument with which his death was effected and that the murderers had hitched the hooked part into his mouth and by the violence which they used to draw him out the jaw was broken and being kept on his back in which position he was found the coagulated blood had caused suffocation. His pockets, when found, were turned inside out, and to prove he had been robbed, Mr Turk, a butcher of Dulwich, deposed that on the evening preceding the murder, the deceased came to his shop and received eight shillings in change of a half a guinea, after discharging a debt of two shillings. Mr Turk was so pleased with the old man's promptitude on that occasion that he gave him a breast of mutton to carry home with him. The jury found their verdict willful murder by a person or persons unknown. Well, I think that's fairly true to how I remember the story from back in the day. I know it was many, many years ago that I covered it now, but that seems to be pretty accurate to me. So there we have it. Maybe some of these stories aren't entirely made up. Now, the next one I'm going to read you piqued my interest because the title is The Pain of Separation, Exemplified in the Case of a Female Convict. In the year 1786, an order came to Mr Simpson, the keeper of Norwich Jail, to send three female convicts under sentence of transportation to Plymouth. One of these unfortunate females was the mother of an infant five months old, which she had suckled from its birth. 
The father of the child was likewise a felon under a similar sentence. He had repeatedly expressed a wish to be married to the woman and was much distressed at the order for her removal. Application was made to the Secretary of State to allow him to accompany her, but without success. When Mr Simpson arrived with his party at Plymouth, the captain of the Hulk refused to take the infant, saying he had no order to take children. Neither the entreaties of Mr Simpson nor the agonies of the poor woman could prevail on the brutal captain to the permit of the babe to remain until instructions from government could be received. The jailer was therefore obliged to take the child, and the frantic mother was led to her cell. Determined, if possible, to restore the child to its parent, Mr Simpson set off for London, carrying the infant all the way in his arms. When he reached town, he hastened to the office of Lord Sidney, the Secretary of State, but was denied admittance. But humanity is not to be restrained by forms, and Mr Simpson, after waiting attendance for several days at length, saw Lord Sidney descend the staircase, to whom he made so pathetic an appeal that his lordship instantly gave orders that the child should be restored to its mother, and that the father should accompany them. Well, that was a rather nice story, I think. All's well that ends well. So there's a few little really short ones in a row here, so I'm just going to read these ones out because um, the more the merrier, yeah? Magnanimous Criminal Mr Ryland, the artist who was executed in 1789 for forgery, so consolidated the friendship of the governor of Tothill Fields Bridewell, where he was confined, that he not only had the liberty of the whole house and garden, but when the other prisoners were locked up of an evening, the governor used to take him out with him and range the fields to a considerable distance. His friends, anticipating the consequences of a trial at this time, concerted a plan by which Ryland was to effect his escape in one of these excursions, and which was to have been executed in such a manner that the exoneration of his guardian must have followed course. But probable as it appeared, when mentioned to the unfortunate man, he was so far from exceeding that he protested that if he was at that moment to meet his punishment, he would embrace it with all its terrors rather than betray a confidence so humanely given. He was deaf to remonstrances and entreaty, and ultimately preferred the risk of death to a breach of friendship. Well, that's loyalty for you. And I'm sure I definitely just pronounced all of those words wrong. Moving on. Punishment of Cooks. In the year 1530, Smithfield, which had been used as a place for the execution of felons even before the year 1219, was the scene of a most severe and singular punishment. Inflicted on one John Roos, a cook who had poisoned 17 persons of the Bishop of Rochester's household, two of whom died. By a retrospective law, he was sentenced to be boiled to death, a judgment, horrible as it was, which was carried into execution. In 1541, Margaret Davy, a young woman, suffered in the same place and manner for a similar crime. Yes, I have heard that Smithfield used to be quite the place for boiling people. That's quite an interesting little bit of history. If you're ever in the Smithfield area, at the moment they're currently changing it all for the new Museum of London, but there are some plaques around there as well, so I suggest that you stop and give them a read because they are really interesting and um, it was quite a gruesome area at the time. Okay, next one. This one's called Henry V. Among the spectators of the execution of Badley, the tailor who was burnt in Smithfield for heresy was Henry, Prince of Wales, afterwards Henry V. 
Struck with pity at the miserable cries of the unhappy victim, the prince commanded the fire to be extinguished and offered him a pension. Hmm, I wonder if that actually happened. And I wonder how badly burnt he was before that fire was extinguished. Okay, now I'm going to finish up with one that I think will be fun. It's called Love, Revenge and Suicide. Maybe fun isn't the right word. Uh, intriguing. A young gentleman who lived in London who had paid his address to an agreeable young lady and won her heart also obtained the consent of her father to whom she was an only child. The old gentleman had a fancy to have them married at the same parish church where he himself was, at a village in Westmoreland, and they accordingly set out, he being at the same time indisposed with the gout at London. The bridegroom took only his man and the bride her maid, and they had a most agreeable journey to the place appointed from whence the bridegroom wrote the following letter to his wife's father. Sir, after a very pleasant journey hither, we are preparing for the happy hour in which I am to be your son. I assure you the bride carries it in the eye of the vicar who married you, much beyond her mother, though he says your open sleeve, pantaloons and shoulder knot made a much better shoe than the financial dress I am in. However, I am contented to be the second fine man this village ever saw, and shall make it very merry before night, because I shall write from thence. Your most dutiful son, T.D. P.S. The bride gives her duty and is as handsome as an angel. I am the happiest man breathing. The villagers assembled about the church and the happy couple took a walk in a private garden. The bridegroom's servant knew his master would leave the place very soon after the wedding was over and seeing him draw his pistols the night before took an opportunity of going into his chamber and charged them. Upon their return from the garden, they went into that room and after a little fond raillery on the subject of their courtship, the bridegroom took up one of the pistols when he knew he had unloaded the night before and presented it to her and said to her with the most graceful air while she looked pleased with his agreeable flattery, Now, madam, repeat of all those cruelties you have been guilty of towards me. Consider before you die how often you have let a poor wretch freeze under your casement. You shall die, you tyrant, you shall die. With all those instruments of death about you, with that enchanting smile, those killing ringlets of your hair. Give fire, she said laughing. He did so and shot her dead. Who can speak of this condition? But he bore it so patiently as to call up his man. The poor wretch entered and his master locked the door upon him. Will, said he, did you charge these pistols? He answered, yes, upon which his master shot him dead with the undischarged instrument of death. After this, amidst a thousand broken sobs, piercing groans and distracted motions, he wrote the following letter to the father of his dead mistress. Sir, Two hours ago, I told you truly I was the happiest man alive. Your daughter lies dead at my feet, killed by my hand. Though a mistake of my man's charging my pistols unknown to me. I have murdered him for it. Such is my wedding day. I will follow my wife to her grave. But before I throw myself upon my sword, I command my distraction so far as to explain my story to you. I fear my heart will not keep together till I have stabbed it poor good old man. Remember that he who killed your daughter died for it. In death I give you thanks and pray for you, though I dare not myself. 
If it be possible, do not curse me. Farewell forever, T.D. This being finished, he put an end to his life, and afterwards the body of the servant was interred in the village where he was killed, and the young couple, attended by their maid, was brought to London and privately interred in one grave, in the parish in which the unhappy father presided. There's just a few stories from the terrific register. As I said, thanks for allowing me the time to research this next case. It's a really good one, but as I said, I just want to make sure I do it justice and I just need a little bit more time to be able to do that. In the meantime, if you want more shows, we've just put out another episode of Having a Problem over on my Patreon, which is a show I host with my long-suffering other half. So what counts as moderate aerobic activity? So moderate activity will raise your heart rate and make you breathe faster and feel warmer. One way to tell if you're working at a moderate intensity level is if you can still talk but still not talk. sing. Yes. Which is what I do in the gym all the time. Examples of moderate intensity activities. Brisk walking, water aerobics, which I've always wanted to do water aerobics but I'm scared I might drown. Riding mm. a bike, dancing, doubles tennis, not on your own. <laughs> singles tennis no, doubles tennis why is it called doubles tennis well Push. for me doubles tennis involves me standing there while my partner does all the work that's true so it is less <laughs> intensive for me pushing a lawnmower hiking rollerblading so you could push just say you slow can, just say slow walking uh brisk walking brisk you could briskly walk with a lawnmower yeah. into a pond yeah thrash around trying to get out and dance when you come out. And then do a dance to dry off. And that would all be moderate. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm going to add that to my routine. Sorted. You can get episodes over there. We release them fortnightly. And the lowest tier you can start on there is just $3. So it's pretty cheap. And um, you've got all the other content too. If you also liked these little audiobook readings, then I also have plenty of those over on my Patreon too. So do check it out. The link will be in the description. Whilst you're checking out my Patreon, I also have social media too, so if you're not in a position to be able to support the show right now, then you can still help me out by popping over into my social media, giving me a like, a follow, and also sharing any of my stories around as well about the show. That really helps and makes all the difference. Also, if you're listening to the podcast and you wouldn't mind popping over to the YouTube video and taking a look there, I've got literally hundreds of videos on YouTube now, so I would love it if you checked it out. And the same thing goes if you're watching the show on YouTube and you haven't checked out the podcast, then it's pretty much the same thing, but in audio format. But if you're anything like me, you might actually like having the option of the video version and also the podcast version, so you can switch between the two different medias whenever you need them. So all that leaves me to say is thank you very much for joining me for a slightly different episode of Macabre London this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember to stay spooky and I will see you ghouls next time. Let's not look at the fact that I'm missing a nail. Okay, I'm going to do that instead. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks for understanding. Take care. Bye. Bye.